0: God's people will be prepared for Christ's coming because they live in the light of God's word. The world will be unprepared for the inevitable and inescapable judgment of God. Hello students, if you had opened to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to look at the first half, Lord willing, today, verses 1 through 11. Remember, this letter was written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, probably about A.D. 51. He had visited the church about a year earlier. He was only there for a few months before he got run out of town by opposition, and so he went from there down to Berea, and then from there to Athens, and then from there to Corinth. So this letter was written from Corinth to the church in Thessalonica, probably maybe a year or so after he was there. He had sent Luke up to check on them to make sure they were okay, and Luke came back and said, they're persevering in their faith, but they have some questions for you. So in chapter 4, last week, we looked at the questions they had about what happens to believers who died before Christ came back. See, the Thessalonian church believed Christ was going to come back, but they believed he was going to come back in their lifetime. Paul believed that too as well at this point in time. And they were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. What was going to happen to them? Were they going to miss out on the blessings of Christ's return? So last week, we looked at the rapture. We looked at what happens to the church, those believers who know Jesus as their Savior, what will happen to them uh, if they die before Jesus Christ comes back. And so Paul had said, God revealed to me, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that Jesus is coming back and going to snatch up and carry away his church, and those who have died before you who are still alive, they'll be resurrected first. That was the doctrine of the rapture, so they're not going to miss out on anything. They'll be raised from the dead, and then the people that are left alive when Christ comes back, they'll be resurrected and will meet the Lord in the air and go to heaven with the Lord. So that answers the question, the last half of chapter 4, about what happens to believers at the point of Christ's return. Today we're going to look at what happens to the unbelieving world at the point when Christ comes back. When Jesus Christ catches his church up from the earth and they go to heaven in the rapture, what about the people that are left on planet earth? What happens to them? So he's now going to talk about not the blessings for the believers, but judgment for the unbelievers. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So our first principle is, God has appointed a time for Christ to return to earth but he has chosen not to reveal that time to us. God has appointed a time for Christ to return to earth but he has chosen not to reveal that time to us. So Paul had already talked to them about the second coming of the Lord when he was present with them a few months before. So he said, I don't need to review that material with you. You already know that Jesus is coming back. We've already talked about that. However, I'm going to talk to you about God's eternal plan that he's bringing fruition. And understand that God always has a plan. Amen? Amen. And God's plan always takes place in his perfect time. King Solomon writes about a right time an appointed time, an opportune time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. If any of you are wondering whether things happen randomly, be assured that it does not happen randomly. Nothing happens by accident in God's kingdom. Nothing happens by accident. Everything that happens is appointed by God for His purposes, and for His glory. God has predetermined everything that will happen and when it will happen. Even more importantly, He's predetermined why it will happen. Because nothing happens by accident. God has an eternal purpose for everything to happen, including the exact time for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just before His ascension, He's on the Mount of Olives. His disciples ask Him a very interesting question. Acts 1.6. They say, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, very interesting, he says, quote, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the disciples wanted the date. He said, when are you coming back? Is it going to be Wednesday or Thursday? I mean, just let us know the time when you're going to return. And Jesus said, by the way, the time is already fixed. The Father has already fixed the time, the date, and when that event's going to take place, but it's not the Father's will that you would know when that time is. See, from God's standpoint, the time of Christ's return is known, fixed, set, predetermined. From a human standpoint, from our point of view, the time of Christ's return is what we call imminent imminent. Here's the principle. The second coming of Christ is imminent, but not immediate. The second coming of Christ is imminent, but not immediate. Let me explain that. Imminent means that something is ready to happen. It's at hand. In other words, there's nothing on God's prophetic calendar that has yet to occur before Christ's return. There's nothing that needs to happen on God's prophetic calendar before Christ's return. Imminent means that Christ can return at any time. Immediate means what? Right now. Immediate means instantaneous. Immediate means he's coming back right now. There's a big difference between imminent and immediate. And you say, well, why would God not tell us the date of his return? Why wouldn't he give us a time? Just say, I'm coming back, blah, 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 at XYZ date. God wants us to live by faith expecting that Christ could return any time, any day. This keeps us from falling into one of two extremes. When we think about Christ's return, people tend to fall into one of two extreme camps. If we knew, suppose we knew, the exact date Christ is returning, it would be terribly easy to become complacent if the date was 230 years from now. You'd say, well, I'm going to be... Dead and gone, you know, so he's not coming back in my lifetime, therefore, I can do blah, 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 because he's not going to come back. Why get serious if Jesus is not coming back for another couple centuries? On the other hand, when the date became closer, people could become pretty feverish in their expectations. You know that pastors and Bible teachers, quote, unquote, large parentheses there, tend to set dates. Throughout history, people have set dates for Christ's return, and you often see a lot of fanaticism, fantasy, instead of biblical living at that point in time, date setting for Christ's return, number one is foolish, no one knows the date, Jesus said that, don't waste your time, but whenever someone does predict Christ's return, the people that believe it usually engage in behavior that we would say is not scriptural and does not honor the Lord. So... God has very good reasons for not telling us. If we know he can come back today, we'll live by faith. We'll trust him for today. A pastor used to ask his parishioners, I'm trying to think of the name of the pastor, do you think Christ could come back today? And the parishioners would say, well, probably not today. And he said, that means he might, because it says no one will know. Right? He'll come back when you say he's not coming back. So when you think he's not coming, he actually might show up. Actually, we know when he's coming back. Whenever he chooses. (laughs) right? And that will be the perfect time in the fullness of time, just like he came the first time in the fullness of time. But the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. We know that. Verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Here's the principle. The day of the Lord is a specific period of time when God intervenes in history to judge sin and sinners. The day of the Lord is a specific period of time when God intervenes in history to judge sin and sinners. And Paul says, you know full well about the day of the Lord, which means... I've taught you accurately, I've taught you extensively about this at my first time there. Now this period, the day of the Lord, is a phrase that is used dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament and even sometime in the New Testament. It is a future period of time, a specific period of time, when God works more directly and God intervenes more specifically and dramatically in human affairs than in any other time since Jesus walked the earth. It's in sharp contrast, the day of the Lord is in contrast with the day of man, which of course seems what we're in now, where events on earth seem to progress without God's intervention. Well, God does intervene now every single day, or we wouldn't be here, but he operates behind the scenes most of the time. Most of what God does on planet earth today, you never see. On the day of the Lord, it's going to be visible. Highly visible. The Jewish people thought about time as being divided into two ages. One, this present evil age is the one we lived in today. And two, the age to come, when God would come and make everything right. Now, in between the present evil age and the golden age to come was the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when God intervenes in human history in a pretty dramatic fashion and he's going to bring about both judgment and blessing. In the Old Testament, that phrase, that period of time is referred to as the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, that exact time frame is called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time when God is going to judge the world for its sin and rebellion against him. The most extensive record of the tribulation or the day of the Lord is found in Revelation 6 through 18. Some night if you can't sleep, read it you'll definitely not sleep after you read it. There's no doubt about it. That's the best wake-up pill you could ever have. So after the tribulation period, then we have the period of blessing, the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus will come and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years on earth, and the earth will be a literal paradise. So in this passage of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul doesn't discuss the entire day of the Lord, only the initial coming of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will begin sometime after the rapture of the church. We're not sure what the time frame is, but we know it'll be after the rapture of the church, and we reviewed that last week. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has noted that God has three purposes for this day of the Lord period of time, this tribulation. Number one, to make an end of sin and sinners. To make an end of sin and sinners. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel with fury and burning anger to make a land a destination, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Right now, when you look at planet Earth, would you say that sin occupies a significant part of the planet? It doesn't take long to figure that out. There will come a day when sin will be destroyed. Now, the process will curl your hair because it's going to involve judgment on a scale that you cannot comprehend. But God will put an end to sin. Number two, the second purpose of the day of the Lord is to bring about a worldwide revival. We see this in Revelation 7. These are millions and millions and millions of people who will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Revelation 7 verse 8. After these things I looked, and behold... A great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, quote, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who are these people? Verse 14 tells us. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They came to faith during the tribulation. Grace is going to operate on a scale during the tribulation, during the day of the Lord, Revelation 6-18, through beyond what we can comprehend. It will be absolutely amazing. God's going to save many, many, many millions during that day of the Lord. The third purpose of the tribulation of the day of the Lord is to break the stubborn will of the Jewish people. Daniel is given a vision of what it's going to be like for the Jewish people during the tribulation. We talked about this when we looked at the book of Daniel. In Daniel's vision, he sees an angel asking Jesus how long this period of time will continue. Daniel 12, 7 says, I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, they're talking about Jesus here, and swore by him, the Father, who lives forever, that it would be for a time times and half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, when the Jewish people are literally on the brink of annihilation because they'll be surrounded by enemies, they will at that point in time cry out to their Messiah, who they rejected the first time. They will cry out to their Messiah to come and save them, and Messiah will come and save the Jewish nation from annihilation. And then he will set up his capital in Jerusalem and rule from Israel, the planet, right? So it's utterly interesting to me, and it bespeaks of the character of God that in the middle of vast destruction and judgment of sin, he is involved in redemption and redeeming and restoring and... Romans 11.25 says, all Israel will be saved. So God allows them to experience enormous pain and suffering to the point of bringing them to repentance. That's the whole point. By the way, God does that with us on a regular basis. How many of our lessons have been learned at the point of extraordinary scar tissue acquisition? Some of us are walking around with that still. Don't ever forget those. They remind you not to do the same stupid that we did last time, right? That's part of the education process. That's part of the mercy of God who allows us to suffer to the point of bringing us to repentance and dependence on him. So the next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church, which means it's imminent. It can happen at any time. And following the rapture is the day of the Lord, which is then followed by the millennial kingdom, God's thousand-year reign on earth through Jesus Christ, and then, of course, Revelation in chapter 20 and 21, or 21 and 22, tells us about the eternal order. So let's look at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Paul says, will come like a thief in the night. It will come as a sudden surprise to those living on planet earth, like a thief comes to a sleeping homeowner, and Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, when he's having a private briefing with his 12 disciples, they're asking him about the end times and when are you going to come back and how what's the sign of your coming and all this other stuff. And he says in chapter 24, verse 43, quote, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his host to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready... For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. By the way, thieves generally don't send you an email, text, video cam, whatever, and say, I'm showing up at 235 at your place to break in and steal your stuff. Right? They come, well, how? Without warning, right? When you do not expect them, and many times, surprise, surprise, they come at night so they can operate under the cover of darkness, right? You can't easily see them. The consequence will be in verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Here's the principle. The world will be unprepared for the inevitable and inescapable judgment of God. The world will be unprepared for the inevitable and inescapable judgment of God. Interesting question. Who are they? That verse uses the word they and them on multiple occasions. Who are they? They are those who are left behind. Those who are left behind after the church is raptured. They are non-Christians. They are people who have not yet placed their faith in Christ or never will place their faith in Christ. We know that the trigger point for the beginning of the tribulation is the signing of a peace treaty between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist. Daniel 9, 24-27 gives us exact specific details on how that will take place. That treaty between Israel, who is surrounded by enemies and almost annihilated, they are going to place their faith not in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but in his exact opposite, the Antichrist, because they are desperate for protection. The Antichrist will sign a peace treaty with him for seven years. We know he's going to break it halfway through. Scripture tells us that. But this treaty is going to usher in a period of peace on planet Earth. It's temporary. It's a false peace. But people are going to go, oh, at last. You know, we have peace and safety, and the world is stable. It's business as usual. Life is back to normal, like we all want to go back to normal. Normal. Like, what is normal? We're not sure anymore, right? But people want to be comfortable and complacent. That's how people want to operate. That's just life. And at this period of time when that treaty is signed, that will be the evaluation of the current situation the world goes. Peace and safety. And Jesus predicted this when he told the disciples in Luke 17. He gives them an analogy. He says, here's what planet Earth is going to be like during this period of time. Quote, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the wrath of God poured out during the day of the Lord will begin when no one expects it. No one expects it. They'll be saying life is good. It's going to continue to be good. You know, most of life is linear. Most of life. Tomorrow will probably be a lot like today. Generally, right? And generally, today was a lot like yesterday. However, there are non-linearities in life that occur. And when they occur, everything changes. When God's judgment falls, everything changes. Think about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the wealthiest farming regions on planet Earth during Abraham's lifetime. His nephew Lot, they're going to split the land up because the land's not big enough for both of them. And Abraham says, Nephew Lot, choose wherever you want. It says that Lot, looked at the land down by the south end of the Dead Sea. Right now it looks like a moonscape down there, but back then it was very rich and fertile, and he chose that area, moved down there, got infected with the heathenism, the paganism, the idolatry uh, of that area, and God comes down in Genesis 18 and he says, Abraham, I'm going to check out Sodom and Gomorrah to find out if it's as bad as I've heard, because their sin has reached heaven. So God sends two angels, and he's going to rescue Lot from out of those two cities. And Lot tells his family that God's going to destroy the city, and it said, they laughed at him. They couldn't imagine a non-linearity like the most prosperous farming area in the entire region disappearing. Scripture tells us that the angels finally had to drag Lot. It says they grabbed him and his wife and his two daughters by the hands, and literally drug them out of the city. And they barely got out before a volcanic eruption incinerated and buried both cities and everyone in them. So when Jesus said destruction comes suddenly, he uses them as an example. The world's peace and safety are going to be destroyed by God's judgment and it's going to happen suddenly, unexpectedly, abruptly, and conclusively. God is ending the current world sinful system and he's gonna replace it with a new one. For those in our planet that are placing their faith in this current world system, I've got news for you. It has an expiration date when it will no longer function because it will be destroyed. Paul says that's gonna happen like labor pains in a pregnant woman. Now labor pains is painful for those of you that have given birth. And they can be gradual, they can be sudden, But one thing they are, they're increasing. Yes, as you get closer to birth. So the signs of God's judgment seem discernible, but we're not quite sure the moment of its arrival. And of course, what is born out of labor pains is the greatest joy of life. Physically, it is a child. It is new life. Out of the labor pain of the day of the Lord is going to come what? The messianic kingdom. A thousand-year reign of peace and prosperity on planet Earth after God's judgments. And Jesus is going to set up his glorious kingdom on Earth after God makes an end of sin. But here's the real point of this labor pain illustration. It says, they, people on planet Earth, will not escape. God's wrath is unavoidable in the same sense that a pregnant woman cannot escape labor pains, and you can't escape the birth of that baby, right? That baby's on a calendar. You may not know what it is, but there is a day when that baby's going to show up and everything that's affiliated with that. The word escape here literally means to run away. To run away. You know, once the volcanic eruption over Sodom and Gomorrah came, began, there's no running away from a volcanic eruption. Right? It moves too fast. Once it started to rain and God had shut the door of the ark, you know, how long can you tread water? I mean, you're not going to escape the flood. It's inescapable. In the same way, he uses that analogy here, the entire earth will be subject to the day of the Lord, and there will be no escape from God's judgment. So the escape is now, right? That's... Scripture says the ark is a picture of salvation. You get into the ark, you're saved from the death of drowning by the flood. We have an escape through the cross of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, so we escape the judgment of God that is coming. And Paul alludes to that in verse 4. But you, brethren, now he's, he's talked about the world is going to experience the day of the Lord. He says, you, brethren, you in Christ, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Here's the principle. God's people will be prepared for Christ's coming because they live in the light of God's word. God's people will be prepared for Christ's coming because they live in the light of God's word. So Paul is now using a metaphor. He's going to illustrate the difference between Christians and non-Christians by looking at light and darkness. Light means illumination, right? You can see. Light means warmth. Light means growth. You turn light on a plant, you get growth. Light means transparency. You shine a floodlight on something, you get to see. Scriptures are filled with illustrations of this. Christians have Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world who lives inside believers. Jesus said that those who believe in him become, quote, children of light, John 12. Our Heavenly Father in the book of James is called the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Psalm 119 says what? God's word is a... Lamp to your feet and a light to your path so you don't stumble and fall. The Holy Spirit is said to illuminate our minds, shine the light of God's Word on our minds so we can understand what He says. So Christians who believe and obey God's Word will not be taken by surprise. They will be prepared and will be ready. The reality is, every one of us should live every day expecting Christ to return today. Today. I mean, one of the ways if you know you're ready. If you did know he was going to show up by noon and you added precisely two hours before he showed up, what would you do? They asked this question one time, St. Ignatius. They said, suppose you're playing ball and the Lord was going to show up in two hours, what would you do? He said, I'd finish my ball game. Because that was an act of worship. If you're vacuuming the floor, and you're doing it because that's what God wants you to do at that point, why would you not continue to do that, even if he's going to show up in two hours? What should you be doing at all times? Whatever he calls you to do at that point. So if you're doing dishes, changing a diaper, washing a window, sharing your faith, whatever it happens to be, it is all holy, and godly obedient activity as long as it's done for the glory of the king. There's no sense running down to church, getting ready for Jesus to come back if he's going to come by noon. If he wants you to babysit, then you ought to be babysitting. That's what he's called you to do. You're honoring him by being faithful in whatever task he's called you to do, right? Whether he shows up today at 12 or 30 years from now, doesn't matter. If you're ready for him every day, guess what? You'll never be surprised when he does show up which is the point. And we are commanded, of course, to walk as children as light. So that's, that's Christians. They're light. Darkness means blindness. Darkness means coldness. Darkness means death. Darkness means isolation. Darkness is the domain of evil. Anytime Scripture uses light and dark, it's talking about evil. It means spiritual blindness. It means opposition to God. What did Jesus say in John 3? Sinners love the darkness rather than the light because what? They love their deeds, their evil, and they don't want the light to expose them, right? Sinners stumble and fall because they refuse to walk in the light that God has provided. You and I know this. We have loved ones who are not following God's word and you can see the train wreck about to happen because you know they're not following the light because they don't see or don't want to see, right? Paul uses another analogy, not just light and darkness, he uses the word sleep. Now last week we talked about sleep as a metaphor for death, right? A temporary state for the Christian. Death is temporary for the Christian. We're going to be with Jesus, right? But it doesn't mean death here. Sleep means here spiritual lethargy, spiritual carelessness, spiritual indifference. If someone's spiritually asleep, they're... They're insensitive to God. They're not responsive to God. They're living their life as if God doesn't exist. And Jesus, of course, commands us not to be spiritually asleep. He says you should be spiritually awake. You should be sober. You should be alert. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, at that point, probably craves human companionship more than any other time in his life. He's going to the cross shortly, and he takes Peter, James, and John into the garden, and he goes and prays, and he pours out his heart to the Father, and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He knows his death is coming, and he's in agony. He sweats drops of blood. He can hardly stand, and he comes back to the disciples, and they are doing what? Sleeping. And he says, quote, Keep watching and praying so that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Most of us in this room have lived long enough to understand that our intentions are not always our actions, because the flesh is weak. And of course, the way to stay spiritually awake is to stay close to Jesus through prayer, and to stay close to God's people through fellowship. God will give us the power to resist temptation. If you want to resist temptation, some people don't want to resist temptation, right? And of course, the disciples were tempted to sleep because they were tired. I understand that. Jesus said, watch and pray. So this staying alert is intimately tied with prayer and the ability to function even when your flesh is weak is intimately decided are accomplished through prayer, intimacy with God, and intimacy with God's people. By the way, Satan loves isolated Christians. Satan loves Lone Ranger, Rambo Christians who want to do it themselves, right? They're very easy to pick off. That's why we need the vertical relationship with Jesus through prayer, and we need the horizontal relationship with others through fellowship. And he says, I want you to be alert. Alert means to watch. It requires mental vigilance. It requires awareness. It means to be wide awake. And we're called here to wake up spiritually and to stay awake spiritually. And he also says not just alert, but he says sober. And sober means to live a self-controlled life. To live a morally pure life, but to live that life under the authority and responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Luke 21.34, once again, an, another re- record of the Olivet Discourse about the end times when he's coming back, and Jesus tells his disciples, be on guard. Why? So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth, but keep on the alert at all times, praying, that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, I read that and I thought, you know, most people I know don't get drunk. But almost everybody I know deals with the worries of life, the cares of this world, the stuff that you need to do this, you need to do that, that's not done. What about if that goes wrong? relationships that wish they were straightened out. Financial, there's always the stuff of this life, the cares of this life. And he says, those can weigh you down and sink your ship like too much ballast trying to sail across a lake at that point in time. Satan loves to drown out the voice of God with the noise of this life. Have you noticed that this world is a noisy place? A little more silence would probably make God's voice easier to hear. But we don't want to miss out on anything, right? Well, there's an enormous amount of noise in this life that we probably could miss out on. So sometimes turning off the electronic devices and making space for the still small voice of God to be heard is enormously important because Satan loves to keep us preoccupied with the bright, shiny toys of this life. There's always more bling, right? Satan will tell us that it's more pleasurable to sin than it is to obey. The reality is for the Christian, obedience will bring you far more pleasure then sin will. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings conflict. Sin brings brokenness. Obedience, watching and praying and staying close to Jesus, brings you joy. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Verse 7. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here's the principle. God's people must be spiritually alert, self-disciplined, and put on the armor of faith, love, and hope. God's people must be spiritually alert, self-disciplined, and put on the armor of faith, love, and hope. We are called... Not to be asleep, but to be awake. We are called to be alert, wake up, and suit up. Get your armor on because we're in a battle. The people that are spiritually asleep want to be spiritually asleep. They don't want God in their lives. The word drunk here goes far beyond just inebriation, alcohol inebriation. It's a metaphor for being under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. Being under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. Now, the truth of it is, the world spends trillions of dollars trying to influence you. And they will spend even more money trying to influence you without you being aware of it. Much of your time on electronic devices, you are being influenced and you are not even aware you are being influenced. That's where you get subjected to the world's thinking without being aware of it. So we need to be very careful that we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Now, another word for sober here is self-controlled. A sober person is self-controlled, a spirit-controlled person. A sober person is comp- is not complacent, but they are calm because their confidence is in Christ, not in their circumstances. We, as Christians, belong to Christ, and we are to be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, which means we're to be under the control, the authority, the direction, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're also in a battle, and we need to be armored up for battle. And he uses two terms here, the breastplate and the helmet. The breastplate was metal or chainmail, and it covered the neck to the waist. It covered the vital organs, you know, the heart, the lungs, the liver, etc., etc., The helmet protected the head, the brain, from trauma in battle. So, faith, hope, and love are presented here as the armor that protects us from temptation. Faith is far more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just believing something is true. Faith is putting your full weight on something. It is entrusting your life to that thing. The book of James tells us that even the demons believe in God. They do but it says they shudder, as well, because they know judgment is coming, and they know God is sovereign, and yet they refuse to surrender their lives to Him. In 1859 and 1860, a professional tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, the great Blondin, came to the United States and France. He crossed the Niagara Falls Gorge, just south of the falls, on a two-inch-wide, 1,100-foot-long cable that was stretched 160 feet above the gorge. By way of comparison, just so you know, the Golden Gate Bridge is about 220 feet above the water. If you jump, in four seconds, you hit the water about 75 miles an hour. About 5% of the people survived the initial impact. So it's obviously a tragic situation when that occurs. So Blondin crossed this gorge as a daredevil on multiple occasions. He crossed it blindfolded. He crossed it once pushing a wheelbarrow. He actually went out there one time and cooked an omelet on the middle of the cable just to show off, right? And once he carried his manager on his back all the way and back. So there's lots of spectators, about a crowd of 5,000 people back then. And they believed that he could do it because they had seen him do it. But they didn't have faith. Only the manager had faith. Because the manager put his whole weight, his whole life on Blondin's ability to carry him across a 2-inch wide, 1,100 foot cable, 160 feet above death. That's faith. Question. We say we have faith. Have we trusted everything to Jesus? And it's easy to say, well, I've trusted my eternity to him. Yeah, have you trusted this life to Him? Have you trusted your children to Him? And your grandchildren? And your health? And your finances? And your ego? And your pride? And your fear? And your doubt? I could go on and on and on. It's easy to say, well, I've trusted my eternity to Him. Yeah, you don't have any choice there. You're going to be dead. Have you trusted this life to Him? Everything. And that's a day-by-day surrender. Second Part of the help, second part of the the armor is love. And we're talking about here agape, which is God's love. The first command is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love God more than anything. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. So love here is more than just empathy or sympathy. Love is action. And love is action that's committed to the best interest, the benefit of the one who's loved. And the essence of this, he's saying, Love, if you say you love Jesus, then you ought to be loving other people. We need, we'll we'll, we'll see your vertical love for Jesus expressed in your horizontal love for other people, and that will be sacrificial love for their benefit. That's the second piece of armor. Faith, love, and then hope. Thomas Aquinas once said, quote, Faith has to do with things that are not seen. Hope has to do with things that are not at hand. See, hope is always about what? The future. Hope is the confident expectation that the future God has promised will come to pass in His time. Ultimately, your and my hope is only in one thing. Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ. It's in Him alone. Hope will protect your mind from this world's false belief that this life has no purpose, no meaning, no direction, no destination. See, salvation and eternal life with Christ in heaven forever is the hope that sustains us through this mess we call current life, right? The trials and tribulations of this life. We look forward with hope to what? Someday it's going to be done. There's an old Negro spiritual, soon going to be done with the troubles of the world. Well, there's lots of troubles in this world. The hope is it's going to have an endpoint. This is Temporary. You don't want to live forever here. Amen? Amen. Hope is where we're, the the eternal life with Jesus Christ through salvation in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Here's the principle. Since God's plans for Christians is salvation and not judgment, we should encourage one another to live holy lives. Since God's plan for Christians is salvation and not judgment, we should encourage one another to live holy lives. And this word destined, kind of predestined, if you will, for lack of a better word, means appointed means assigned, means set aside, means purposed for. We know Ephesians 1 tells us that believers, followers of Jesus, were chosen by God for salvation when? Before the foundations of the earth, before there was any creation, Jesus Christ knew your name, your DNA, and set you apart and elected and chose you for salvation. That doesn't mean you're not responsible to respond, that's God's perspective. And we were chosen and destined for what? For salvation, not wrath. Let me explain this. Most of the time when we think about wrath, we think about somebody losing their temper, right? Because that's what we do as humans. God never loses control. God never loses his temper. God's wrath is his perfectly just and settled opposition to anything that detracts from his holiness. God's wrath is his perfectly just and settled opposition to anything that detracts from his holiness. And that would include, obviously, sin. All sin. That's rebellion against his holiness. Disobedience, idolatry, pride, you can fill in the blanks. But God's wrath is just because God is holy. If God was not against sin and did not judge sin, he would not be a just judge. But because he is holy and he is perfectly just, he is opposed to sin and will destroy sin. But the Christian will not experience God's righteous wrath against sin because Jesus already experienced God's wrath for us. This verse is absolutely amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin... To be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus Christ did what? He took God's wrath for my sin on himself, and he gave me his perfect righteousness in exchange. Now, God looks at me and you, and he sees us as having the perfect righteousness of Christ, and therefore, he says, not guilty. You are right with God. Your relationship is right with God because Jesus took the righteous, just wrath of God and paid our sin debt. Everyone in the universe is destined to either experience God's wrath or God's salvation. God's wrath is poured out on all those who refuse salvation through Jesus Christ. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God's abide on him. See, the great truth is God's wrath can be avoided. His salvation can be experienced if you place your faith in Christ's payment for your sins. Salvation is real simple. It's about ex- escaping God's wrath and living with Jesus forever in heaven. I tell people, they don't like to hear it, but I tell them anyway, Everyone in hell chooses to be in hell. I talk to people all the time. Well, God sends people to hell. No, you choose to be in hell because you refuse God's entry into heaven. God says, I want everyone to be saved. God so loved the world, right, that he gave. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. But God will not violate your free will in saving you. He respects you, he created you with free will, and he wants your love for him to be chosen, not forced. So he says, whosoever will, come, come, right? C.S. Lewis once said something that is both profoundly encouraging and profoundly terrifying. In The Great Divorce, he said, quote, Someday, everyone will either say to God, Thy will be done, or they will hear God say to them, Thy will be done for all eternity. Believers should not be indifferent because their eternal future is secure, and unbelievers should not be deceived because today seems peaceful and secure. Right? Paul says, whether we awake or asleep, we're going to live together with Him. This applies to all Christians, whether dead or alive. Well, see, we're not only saved from sin, we're saved to a brand new life, a new quality of life in Jesus Christ, eternal life. We've been set free from slavery to sin, But we've been set apart for an eternal relationship with God. We've been adopted into God's family. So now we have a relationship with God and with his people. Have you noticed that our view of the future shapes our behavior in the present? Our view of the future shapes our behavior in the present. God does not reveal the future to us like he does today merely for our entertainment. He tells us what he wants to know about the future so that that knowledge will change our behavior in the present. So that we will be prepared and ready for what is to coming. To fail to prepare for the inevitable. How would you describe that? Stupid. Yeah, that's not bad. Foolish. To fail to prepare for the inevitable return of Christ is eternal suicide. Second Peter 3.10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things shall be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Christ will surely return to earth, and his coming will surprise and dismay, obviously, the God-rejecting mockers who have said, yeah, he's not coming back, life's always going to go on just like it's always going on. Life will be linear. Well, when Jesus comes back, Everything changes in an instant. Where sin once ruled, now Christ rules. Where evil was exalted, now holiness was exalted. Where Satan was the prince of the power of the air, Jesus Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem. So ultimately, everything in this old sinful universe is going to be burned up. All the Lord has to do is to say, I'm no longer holding the atomic structure together and every atom goes fission in an instant, and it all disappears, right? And a new heavens and a new earth will be created, Revelation 20:21. 20, we should be living today in light of that certain reality and not be seduced by the day-to-day thinking tomorrow is just going to be like today. In July 1959, Queen Elizabeth was scheduled to visit the city of Chicago. And the entire city made extensive preparations for a visit. I mean, they fixed the waterfront up, they put all sorts of flowers and painted and fixed up the downtown, repaved the streets, and all the hotels were encouraged to make preparations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, they contacted the Ritzy Drake Hotel, and they inquired about their preparations for the Queen visit. And the manager said, We are making no plans for the Queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. Our hearts and our lives should always be ready for the reign and return of King Jesus. Every day, we need to be making ready. Every day, we need to clean the room. There's a great little booklet called, My Heart, Christ's Home. It's extraordinary. Get it online. You can probably pick it up. And it talks about what do you do to make your heart ready for Christ to make his home there day by day, day by day, day by day, so when he comes back, you don't have to go into a panic and go, I need to clean it up. Should be ready for him to come at any point. Okay, let's review, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Number one. God has an appointed time for Christ to return to earth, but he has not revealed that to us. Number two, the second coming of Christ is imminent. He could come any time, but not immediate. Number three, the day of the Lord is a specific period of time when God intervenes in human history to judge sin and sinners. Number four, the world will be unprepared for the inevitable and inescapable judgment of God, Number five, God's people will be prepared for Christ's coming because they live in light of God's word. Number six, God's people must be spiritually alert, self-disciplined, and armored with faith, hope, and love. And lastly, since God's plan for Christians is salvation and not judgment, we should encourage one another to live holy lives. You know, God tells us about the future to impact our behavior in the present. This is largely Paul's purpose and God's purpose when he tells us what's going on in the future. It's not simply to titillate us about, oh, this is coming or that's coming. It's how should this impact us in our behavior today. Lord willing, next week we'll finish 1 Thessalonians 5, and then we'll jump into 2 Thessalonians. And then uh, later this summer we'll be in 1 and 2 Kings, so it's going to be exciting. Thank you for your attention and your diligence. Please read ahead. I love you all. Now
1: that you know. Yeah. mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 930 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Mana, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.